0: changed. No, not at all. I I would like for them to change, that there be new knowledge which uh, says that uh, your nurture uh, is much more important than nature. But I haven't seen any knowledge, and uh, there's a difference on the average between blacks and whites on IQ tests. I would say the the difference is... uh, uh, it's genetic.
1: what you just heard was the scientific creed of a man who most science students are well acquainted with james watson of watson and crick The Godfather of the DNA double helix, the pioneer of the human genome project. This clip was taken from a 2019 interview he did for a PBS documentary on his life, decoding Watson as excerpted in the independent race has been concluded to be a social construct rather than a biological one yet. And still myths persist about the genetic differences between racial groups. And this is especially evident in how we discuss health disparities. Medical researchers still cling to racial designations and how they structure their studies, even though the science does not support significant genetic differences between racial groups. They actually posit that racial groups, specifically black and white, are more similar genetically than they are different. Where does the confusion begin? Again, we're going to waltz into the past and do a bit of sleuthing. Given all the recent discourse about health disparities, we felt it timely to dive into some of the history and its shady pseudoscience that informs our present day study and understanding of these health disparities. You are listening to A Medical History in Color. And above average height. If there was ever a black woman acquainted with some of the more mainstream pseudoscience kind of being projected onto black bodies, I would definitely be that woman. That woman kind of looks like me. <laughs> when was the first time you heard a piece of pseudoscience being projected onto your black body, Martha?
0: Hi, I'm Martha. Um, I think not. It wasn't about my body particularly, but it was about um, like intelligence. Mm. Yeah, so when I first came to America, like teachers would assume right off the bat that like I was behind or I would like need extra help in my class. And my classmates would think like the same thing too. And I thought like, oh, maybe I'm like I have an accent and they can't mm-hmm. understand me or something. So it wasn't until actually, oh, high school. Like I had already formed a like a reputation of my for myself that I didn't need anybody's help. Mm-hmm. And, like, <laughs> and I that like I was, I don't was fine. I don't need from you. <laughs> but in high school, I overheard a classmate telling another classmate, uh, she was talking about Africans. She was like, yeah, all Africans are dumb. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> What? what? And I was like, is this why I was treated? She like said this? this like
1: right in front of you or she didn't know you were
0: listening. She didn't know I was listening. So I was sitting in the front of the class. I was like in the front and she was in the back talking with some other people. Mm-hmm. And she was just, yeah, she was like, um, she said other things about Africans too. But that this podcast isn't about the other things she was talking about. But yeah, she's oh, she said, um she said that and then she stopped and looked at me and I looked at her <laughs> and then she was like Oh, and it was very awkward because like I definitely had better grades than her. I was just gonna say like, I was like, did you I turn out those receipts, like, I definitely had better what grades. What does than that her? make you then? And then like she was like, well, except for like Martha and you know, just Martha by herself. I was like, okay. So I think that's when I realized. I mean, I realized a lot of things in high school, but yeah, that's when yeah. So high school, I figured it out. People thought that. Intelligence or even body was different because you were black.
1: Mm-hmm. In med school, I've had a couple of weird interactions. So sometimes it's just a weird feeling, and sometimes it's outright weird interactions. Mm-hmm. Like if I had to tell a story, one time I had been doing some cardio at our school fitness center, and I've been doing some sprint intervals or something like that. Something for back before I became like, you know, a little fatty. <laughs>
0: and before we cor- got that quarantine <laughs> Exactly,
1: before that quarantine. <laughs> and um this woman comes on to me after I finish my intervals and she's like you just look so strong and just so powerful and this is like an older white woman and she's not being hostile she's not doing anything that's outright like eh, like icky but it made me feel icky you know she's like you're so strong and so powerful I just and then she exclaims I wish I could just be black and I was like I know you don't actually feel that way. Like Mm -hmm. you did not actually wish that you could be black when you were a young twenty-something white woman. Like you care about being that now that, like you know, the years and decades have passed, (laughs) and I'm young, and you're. We're not going to go into that because I don't want to get into anything that smacks of ageism. But I thought it was very strange that she looked at my body that way Mm -hmm. because, um, number one, you know, as an individual person, you're your biggest critic. So I'm critical of my body maybe in a way that other people aren't. But it really played into a pattern of, I noticed sometimes like white and Asian students looking at my body a different way than they looked at their body. So I remember even being in OSCIE's, um, not OSCEs, in our PDX labs and literally hearing people like intake breath when we had to take off our shirt to do like different physical exam maneuvers and stuff like that or whatever. Because like, you know, like my back or my shoulders is like more... Broad than like some of our like non-black classmates and stuff like that like little things like that where I had to really think to myself did I did I imagine that? Mm-hmm. like or you know like am I is this in my head basically mm-hmm. but I've moved through the world with this body for years now and I have to tell you that the older I get and the more research that I've done I found that it's not a coincidence that I'm kind of noting these really weird um, perspectives on on my physical form, so to mm-hmm. speak. Like, forget when we're even talking about like you know men and women. We're just talking about like men and women from other races, but particularly women from other races who might feel more emboldened to speak to me about my body directly. And there's this history we have of looking at black bodies. It's just different than mm-hmm. other people's bodies. We consider them the other. Um, there's a period of time where we're even putting them in zoos. And so mm-hmm. for this episode. We're talking about healthcare disparities and I feel like it is impossible at least from my perspective to talk about these healthcare disparities without talking about the pseudoscience surrounding how we view black bodies. The study that we've seen over the years of how people have seen black bodies as explicitly different than white and Asian and Native American and Hispanic bodies and the body of alleged science that's informed, i.e. pseudoscience. Medical pseudoscience is one of my guilty pleasures, to be honest with you. Like, I I love looking up old medical science that's talking about crazy things like injecting arsenic into people to cure, like, n- pneumonitis and things like... I love that type of stuff. And so, not because the science is valid so much as... It's just fascinating. It's fascinating the theories that have gained traction before we had more refined methods mm-hmm. of, you know, answering scientific questions and collecting empirical evidence. Mm-hmm. I
0: mean it's it's fascinating until like people believe it now in 2020 Mm -hmm. yeah so
1: that's another thing too like i once had a classmate remark to me that the reason that i was like taller and mm -hmm. seemed like i had a larger frame Mm -hmm. than white people is because i actually had larger bones that my bones were more dense which is like again like a piece of pseudoscience that's floating around in literature that people actually believe that black people have greater bone density mm-hmm. that black people like you know have different density of their skulls just so many different things, things floating yeah. around that people took as gospel that were that were not actually vetted properly and scientifically
0: my friend told me of a surgeon that t- commented that black people have thicker skin so she, he had to sew the patient back up and was complaining that it would take a long time because black people have thick skin. Here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we were like, wait, what?
1: Where did you get that from?
0: <laughs> I, I I swear I haven't seen that in I any haven't. of the books.
1: And the weird thing is, like, I'm a little ashamed to admit this, but when this stuff comes up, um, unless it's overtly... L- unless it's overt, which often it's not, which we discussed before. I'm actually a little bit taken aback. Like, I was taken aback when that woman came up to me after the treadmill. I was taken aback in that PDX lab. I was taken aback when our classmate talked about our bones being more dense. Because I, I'm i like, this doesn't sound right, but I'm not the New England Journal of Medicine. I just don't have <laughs> sources to cite to tell you you're wrong, but that doesn't sound right. That sounds like something that smacks of... <laughs> Not racism, but something.
0: Racial ignorance? Racial
1: ignorance. <laughs> Apparently there's a term for this, scientific racism, intellectual mm. racism, academic racism.
0: But, I mean, the thing is, Watson wasn't alone in thinking like this. Obviously, it even, it even persisted today. So, obviously, it wasn't just Watson who was Mm-mm. thinking about this. It was sort of the trend to think of genetics this way. So, Western medical scientists were and are still to this day Obsessed with trying to find some sort of biological boundary that defines race and thus shapes illness. So, this.
1: But originally, it wasn't for illness. Originally, mm-mm. it really was to further, you know, the agenda of institutionalized to, slavery and, in other places, the genocide of certain groups of people.
0: To justify why certain groups of people were treated in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it exists today, but it's not as overt as it was back then putting people in zoos and Mm -hmm. things like that but it's more subtle in scientific study and literature Mm -hmm. so what some old school white researchers might call genetics the rest of us now recognize as pseudoscience so pseudoscience is defined as a collection of beliefs or practices mistakenly regarded as being based on the scientific method Mm -hmm. the key word being mistakenly Mistakenly. Mm -hmm. Mm and the thing is pseudoscience has a really long international history so
1: there's many contributors throughout different eras to pseudoscience Mm -hmm. pseudoscience is not the intellectual property of just the u.s or just nazis or whatever the case might be pseudoscience can include many things outside of race but when we're talking about racial pseudoscience there's so many contributors across so many different eras like It's such an international effort that was made to kind of support racist science um, or scientific racism and to build this body of research. Like we're starting in the UK, and then we're going to Germany, and then they're borrowing ideas from the US, and the US is borrowing ideas from them. And they're using this for their own political ends in all these different places across different areas of history. Martha and I really wanted to keep the discussion on the pseudoscience specifically pertaining to race or scientific racism and simultaneously health disparities in the scope of the themes we've already touched on within this podcast that being said a natural place to start would be with the two sams samuel morton and samuel cartwright who we briefly mentioned in episode
0: one i remember him
1: samuel g morton so this dude is literally like the pinnacle of crude measuring race measuring to a certain extent like when you think of oh telling the difference between races and these really crude politically incorrect ways of doing that Mm -hmm. samuel g morton is probably who you're thinking of without realizing it so this dude he believed that mankind fell into distinct groups based on their skull size and their shape. So he basically collected all these skulls from different continents, Egyptian skulls, Swedish skulls, whatever, and was me- measuring the circumference of these skulls and trying to place these skulls into neat racial groups or distinct racial groups based on the circumference of their skulls. And naturally, his hypothesis was that white people were more intelligent, Mm -hmm. so they had larger circumference skulls. Naturally. So from there, he developed a hierarchy with black people and their smaller skulls at the bottom and Caucasians and their larger skulls at the top. And he published these findings in his works between 1839 to 1849. And it's a work starting with the name Crania, like Crania Egyptica or something of that nature. So, for instance, he figured Egyptians were white because their skulls were larger. And everybody likes to think of themselves as being likened to the Egyptians, which are the pinnacle of civilization. Mm-hmm. And you know, like there's there's white scientists who are not gonna let that go at this point. So Moran is also credited with creating the school or the American school of ethnography. So this is a school of thought that will become the foundation of pseudoscience and scientific racism this man he was not considered a hack at the time he was well educated by some of the finest institutions in this country i believe that he was from harvard and he was a respected physician and scientist in his day the south and by extension the u.s would come to owe their entire way of life to his work it was the basis by which scientists asserted black people were genetically inferior and suited to their position as slaves his work gained even more attraction with some of his faves or his fans rather, published tribute to him in 1854. So he had these fans that they're admirers of his and they published their own tribute to his work in 1854. That's crazy. He has like
0: a fan club. Yes, exactly.
1: Like people ate this up. They loved this because it really played into some ideas of ego or or played into the ego that said that there's something genetically special about me. Mm -hmm. And at this time that me is white people and so in this tribute types of mankind the authors attempted to distill the entire human race down to three distinct groups with those groups being caucasians again at the top the middle which is like a yellow group of people that i guess is vaguely supposed to be related to asian people and then at the bottom again black people so men like sam cartwright while racist in their own right they're following in morton's footsteps which is
0: considered actual science yes
1: exactly like Mm. they're looking at morton's work and they're inspired by morton's work and they're led by an ego-driven desire to find more evidence showing that white people were the superior race
0: so the louisiana state medical convention selected samuel cartwright who was a pro-slavery advocate to be their committee chair.
1: Mm-hmm. I remember we talked about Samuel Cartwright in episode one. One, hmm
0: mm-hmm. And this was the committee that was tasked with investigating and reporting diseases that were unique to black people. So this is where he makes up his, you know... Mm. Okay, so <laughs> we'll get into it. So Dr. Cartwright claimed that black people were, like, very different physiologically from white people. We had smaller brains, we had more sensitive skin, which was weird, which is weird, because now the theory or the belief is, like, black people are less sensitive to pain. Mm-hmm. Which is... I thought it was interesting. But, yeah. So, he believed that black people were more... had more sensitive skin and had an overdeveloped nervous system.
1: Which is weird because we have smaller brains and then there's later literature that said we had underdeveloped nervous systems. But, at mm-hmm. this time, he's saying we have overdeveloped, overdeveloped. nervous systems. Mm-hmm. Which makes us prone to, like, you know, being whimsical and easy... easy to stimulate, I guess. I
0: guess. I mean, he we'll get into him okay so these unique traits he claimed that they gave black people a high propensity for servitude so these were scientific quote unquote evidence and scripture so dr cartwright argued that the negro is a slave by nature and can never be happy in any other condition
1: oh oh did he ask was there any qualitative yeah. analysis that did he did of did this? Did he
0: ask anybody, like, <laughs> do you enjoy being a slave? But
1: if he had asked and we said no, that would just be the disease.
0: Obviously. Yeah. Obviously. So he created this, um, he created different diseases. So we talked about it during episode one. There was a free man's disease called dreptomania, And this disease was supposed to explain why slaves would run away. And he said a runaway slave is mania- mad or crazy the cause in most cases that induces the negroes to run away from service is as much disease of the mind as any other species of mental alienation and much more curable as a general rule Mm. so when someone ran away from slavery instead of thinking like maybe didn't like being slaves and being whipped and being treated like animals you decided that they had a mental disease. Mm -hmm. That's how differently they saw black people and white people. Like if a white person had run away from being abused, they'd be like, oh, of course, because no one likes to be abused.
1: And this is strange because during this entire period, they're using our bodies for scientific study Mm -hmm. that they're using essentially to conduct translational research Mm -hmm. for therapies for white people. So we're so different that we have to live differently. We can't be, we're not entitled to the same freedoms as white people, but we're similar enough that they should be able to perform surgeries on us and study our anatomy and therefore have anatomical knowledge of all peoples, Mm -hmm. including white people. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Okay. So these men, specifically Sam Morton, now they're basically considered a case study in how unconscious biases can affect data collection. However, it is an unconscious bias that arguably many researchers still hold. So we like to hold them up and say, okay these men they were really wayward in their thinking they were backwards like you know they were racist like mm-hmm. we're to a certain extent we're okay with accepting this about this now but we it's almost like we're passing the buck we're not, we're still not willing to do the self-examination of our current society and the current quality of research that we're putting out mm-hmm. and seeing if some of these same biases affect the work that we do now mm-hmm. as scientific researchers So it's alleged by modern scientists that Morton fudged the measurements of his skull sizes and manipulated samples to get the results that he wanted. There's a lot of contention back and forth in literature about this because basically a guy called Stephen J. Gold published what was an answer to Morton's um, hypothesis about races having distinct um, origins. So there's a theory or school of thought called polygenism or polygenetics. And basically it posits that mankind... Comes from distinct origins, like mm-hmm. distinct separate origins. Each race comes from its own origin mm-hmm. versus monogenetics, which says that we are all from a shared ancestor. And so Stephen Jay Gold, he's like, nope, we come from a similar ancestor. And he takes his work, which is called The Mismeasurement of Man and basically lays out an argument that's supposed to refute scientific racism. Mm -hmm. And so people from University of Pennsylvania, which apparently still hold some of these skulls that Samuel Cartwright was studying, are like, no, 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 that's not true. Like, he's overstating and he's he's over-exaggerating the amount to which Samuel Morton fudged this data. Like, there is actual still credence to this man's data. And so... If you're interested in seeing more of the debate, because that's totally outside the scope of this podcast, you could look up Stephen Jay Gould and his work, and you can still find the debates going back and forth in literature about who was right and who was fudging what data and whether or not, you know, Samuel Morton is correct, whether or not Stephen Jay Gould is correct, whether or not we're descended from a common ancestor or from multiple distinct pools per race. And then I also want to kind of point out, so we talk about Samuel Cartwright because he's someone who we referred to in our earlier episodes. But I want to make this very clear. Racism is not simply the intellectual property of the geographical United States South.
0: Mm -hmm. It
1: is something that was an export to different places. And it's something that was an issue throughout this entire country. But when we talk about this history, there's a lot of key players in the South that are contributing to this history and contributing to scientific racist literature. Like It's not just that scientific racists were in the South and they were like, you know what? We wanna make sure that we have work to share between us. They wanted their thoughts to be exported globally. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. wanted to be key scientific and academic minds. And that's what they set out to do. So they have contemporaries globally and they're exporting these different, or espousing these different ideologies about white people's superiority versus black people's inferiority but again i want to make it clear that this is not simply you know the we're not going to simply put this on the shoulders of the south it's just that for our history that we're kind of going through here a lot of key players are
2: in the south Mm -hmm. so in this particular instance i remember sitting in um, a zoom lecture it was Um, on a urology topic and the faculty member was talking about um, one of the autoimmune glomerulonephritis diseases and I I believe it was FSGS and um, if you know anything about medical school type lectures often um, you know we talk about etiology we talk about pathophysiology we talk about treatment we talk about um things to look out for, and then there is the part where uh, we talk about the demographics of um, individuals or patients that are primarily affected by these diseases. And at this point, I'm in my third year of medical school, so I've, I've heard this statement so many times before, so I knew it was coming, I, I expected it, um, but it's still... It still kind of stings a little you know to hear things like that um, every time that I hear it and of course it came and this particular disease is more common in African Americans um, and I don't so there's something about there's something about sitting in a medical school class with all your classmates who are of different backgrounds different ethnicities and hearing over and over and over again that um, certain diseases or certain types of um, diseases that are especially dangerous or especially virulent or just have the highest rate of negative outcomes are more common in african american in african americans and it's a statement that's made over and over and over again and um i think that it's worth noting that these conditions or these diseases are more prevalent in certain ethnic groups or certain races of people it's necessary to mention but I think that the medical community does a great injustice to the topic when it is mentioned that certain conditions or certain diseases are more prevalent in certain communities without addressing the why.
1: So belief in our intellectual inferiority as Black people shaped how people studied the rest of our body, essentially. You would think that it would start and end with our cognitive capacity, but basically they took how, or scientific racist, academic racists took how they saw our intellectual capacity and extrapolated that to the rest of our biological being. So in sickness, white physicians would come to blame our poor genetic composition for any and every ailment. I can give you a couple examples of this that we also talked about in the first episode. Mm -hmm. Pellagra. So we, know, as medical students, and for those who are not medical students, pellagra is a vitamin deficiency, niacin specifically. And so it's going to give you these lesions on your gums, along with a couple of other sequelae. But it was not until 1914 that pellagra was revealed by a Jewish physician scientist to also affect white people. That entire time, they thought that pellagra was just for black people they thought that it was just affecting black people specifically and then even when this jewish physician scientist basically revealed that after he did an experiment on white inmates and was able to induce pellagra in them by Mm -hmm. of course starving them of niacin people ignored that they didn't like that they didn't want to hear about that
0: So, Not only did he abuse these poor inmates, they right. just, he abused them for nothing. They didn't even exactly. want to to him. Nobody
1: okay. wanted to hear that. And so blackger was still a widespread a widespread public health problem until the 1940s and still thought of exclusively as a black disease. Another place that we see this is actually with syphilis. Mm-hmm. So there's a quote in medical apartheid I remember seeing where the black people are referred to as a uniquely syphilis soaked race, quote unquote, And people will posit different reasons for why we had syphilis. But primarily, it's because genetically, we were more prone to promiscuity. Mm -hmm. Go figure. (laughs) So on top of that, syphilis is also thought not to affect our underdeveloped brains. So remember that even though Samuel Cartwright is saying that we actually have overdeveloped nervous systems that make it so that we're more sensitive and more likely to be servants, We also somehow have underdeveloped brains, and so syphilis can't even attack our brains because they're so underdeveloped. It exclusively attacks, apparently, our cardiovascular system compared to whites. Me and Martha already said that we're not gonna get into Tuskegee because we talk so much about Tuskegee. Everybody knows about the Tuskegee experiments, so we're not gonna go there in this specific podcast. Another place that we see this, or another example, is with sickle cell anemia. Every med student, every black <laughs> med student knows the typical sickle cell anemia questions. i starting with an African American patient. Mm-hmm. And it could be a small boy, it could be an older woman. But when we talk about sickle cell anemia, and then, in the fact, as a matter of fact, when we talk about sarcoidosis, we're always talking about an African American person. And the thing is that sickle Mind
0: cell. Mind you, sorry to interrupt, but uh-uh. my first sickle cell patient that I ever met was a white woman.
1: Because sickle cell affects everyone. And by everyone, I mean everyone who is descended or descended from those who have genetics that basically follow the distribution of the Anopheles mosquito or areas that are are endemic to Anopheles mosquito. Because the Anopheles mosquito is the vector for malaria. And sickle cell trait confers a certain level of immunity against malaria. So when we're talking about people who have sickle cell, we're not just talking about black people, we're talking about several groups of people who live in proximity to the vector. The thing is that the first case study on on sickle cell anemia was published in 1910, and it was a wealthy black dental student from Grenada who came in, and basically a black intern got his case and was like, oh man, he has these uh, this uh, these unusual symptoms, and he has these weird shaped blood cells on smear, mm-hmm. and so he notified the white cardiologist he was looking um that he was working for, and that white cardiologist took that case and published it without including the intern so he didn't credit the intern at all and so he called it i think if i remember correctly like miller's anemia or something like that because that was the name of the physician but this is how we got sickle cell anemia the first case study was published in 1910 and when he published that case study he essentially said that it was specifically a disease that affected black people and so from then on sickle cell anemia was thought to affect exclusively black people even though as i said it affects groups that live in proximity to the vector, which is the Anopheles mosquito. This includes Cubans, Central Americans, Saudi Arabians, Turkish people, Greek people, several different groups of people who are not, unquestionably not thought of (laughs) as Black people in our modern international scope. And when you really look at this also, sickle cell, only 0.5 or under 0.5% of Black deaths are attributed to genetic conditions like sickle cell anemia yet we talk about this like this is some sort of scourge on the black community and this is and this is what we primarily see black people come up in our question stems come up in our education when we're talking about sickle cell anemia and then my favorite example of a place that you can easily see a form of scientific racism is in the famous salt retention hypertension hypothesis that we talk about in med school. So. I'm pretty sure every med student or most med students have heard that black people are more likely to have hypertension, right? Because they're more likely to retain salt because their bodies had to adapt to an arid climate and they had to retain more water and salt. And so here that makes them more prone to hypertension. I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of papers refuting that hypothesis right here, but we'll talk about it a little bit more in the later part of the podcast. But we have sources that you can check out that basically say that this hypothesis was never based on any actual hard data and that what's more, even in subjects who are salt sensitive, it would not induce hypertension in them necessarily, even when you're talking about a group of African people from an arid climate. But again, we're going to go into this in the later part of the podcast. But that's like, you know, one of my favorite things because we talk so much about that hypertension example. Pathophysiology, you know, black people are more likely to get hypertension. Physiology, black people are more likely to get hypertension. Public health class, black people are more likely to get hypertension. And we're constantly quoting this hypothesis and there's actual no empirical data to back it up.
2: And I say this because not to paint with a broad, a broad brush or to make it seem like this does not happen to other minority groups as well, but I have seen um, several instances where you know, professors will say, take for one example, um, uh, gastric cancer is more common in um, people who are from certain Asian um, backgrounds or certain Asian ethnic groups. And that's because of a higher, like culturally, you know, smoked foods are are uh, part of like their diet or because culturally this or culturally that or um, they'll say things like, you know, Um, There are certain gene variants that cause these people to metabolize these drugs faster than these other people, but more often than not, when it comes to African Americans, it's simply, and this very bad, very terrible, very dark (laughs) sounding Um, disease with the worst possible outcome you can imagine is common in African Americans and most common in African in African Americans and that and um, you know I have to wonder because it makes me something about it leaves the same taste in my mouth that um, I that I get when I read about how um, white people or yeah I guess white people (laughs) um back in the day thought that black people or people of african descent were subhuman or um you know not as intelligent not as um advanced not as civilized and that was just that there was no there was no investigation into the shared the shared humanity of of us and them, it was simply, you know, the black people are dumb, the black people are primitive, the black people are not advanced, and that is that, you know, there was no, um, there was no mentioning of, you know, all the crimes, all the, and even the discrepancy in language, like, how can you make a judgment on, a whole race of people that you can't even communicate with, you know, and, um, and I'm talking, and I'm talking, you know, way back when, even before, um, slavery. Wow.
0: You just shook the foundation of all medical schools. <laughs> what are we gonna publish in our textbooks?
1: Are, how are we gonna mention black people in our curriculum so we don't talk about sickle cell anemia? Hypertension. What what else is there? So and sarcoidosis. Mm. So health disparities. Did black people really draw the genetic short straw, so to speak, or Are our healthcare profiles the natural result of a confluence of historical and environmental factors that influence who receives quality care and who does not? And what's more, who gets sick and who does not? Okay.
0: So if you're in areas, if you do anything in the areas of like medicine and public health, a discussion on health disparities is super popular right now and you're not new to it. Mm -hmm. But for those in the general public who may not have anything to do with medicine, health disparities may be a relatively new topic topic so let's delve into health disparities mm-hmm. so health disparities is supposed to explain the differences between different groups of people when it comes to health so the differences aren't because of some like mysterious genetic difference between like blacks and whites but because of access to things such as safe housing affordable and reliable transportation mm-hmm. health insurance clean water, non-polluted air nutritious food, high quality education immigration <laughs> status even having a um, a like culturally sensitive healthcare provider like there's mm-hmm. so many things that go into health than your genetics
1: and you would have to exclude that exclude all of those things as confounding or contributing factors to continue to assert that black people have specific maladies because of their, their genetics, genetics.
0: Mm-hmm. so let's take access to safe and decent housing mm-hmm. for example so stay with me on this so African Americans are 3 times more likely to be hospitalized for asthma than non than non-Hispanic whites. Racial minorities like Hispanics and blacks are twice as likely to be in urgent care for asthma. But this is due to discriminatory real estate practices such as redlining, which is now illegal. Mm-hmm. And steering, which is what they do now.
1: And for those who don't know, redlining oh. was basically the process by which they decided who was allocated certain loans and who didn't get certain housing loans. And a disproportionate amount of those housing loans were automatically granted to white up, white applicants over black applicants. And this determined who can basically buy property in what neighborhood.
0: -hmm. And steering is a technique that real estate agents use now, where they show African American families less houses and take them to areas that are. How should I say this?
1: More suited to. More
0: suited, quote unquote, suited to an African American.
1: My parents were actually the victims of steering. There was actually a really um, thorough piece published about Long Island real estate Mm -hmm. where they were basically catching real estate agents on camera, on video camera, on recordings, talking to white customers versus black customers and the different things they were telling them about certain neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. My parents actually used to remark on this all the time when they were first buying a house on Long Island that they could tell that they were not being shown certain properties Mm -hmm. versus white applicants because the idea was they wanted to keep black applicants in certain places. And if you look at the town that I actually, my parents ended up buying a house in, Mm -hmm. it's a predominantly black town and white people have moved further out on Long Island. And so when you look at how real estate agents choose to show houses, they are more likely to show white people those neighborhoods where there is a greater density of white people and then show black people and Hispanic people moving from Brooklyn, the Bron- Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, mm-hmm. specifically places in Long Island that already have a greater density of black people.
0: Which is really weird. I mean, not to get off topic, but it's really weird because you would think that real estate agents would be like focused on making money like I would. That's what I would do. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just trying to make money. But eh, that's weird. And
1: they were less likely to do credit. There's so many things that were revealed in that article. But like Mm -hmm. one of the things that also came up was they were less likely to do credit checks on white applicants, whereas they required black people to submit proof of good credit in order to even show them houses.
0: Wow. Okay, but we're getting off track. Back to health disparities. (laughs) So because of these sort of discriminatory real estate practices, large populations of African Americans had to live in segregated homes that were unstable and inadequate. In fact, there's a positive correlation with repeated hospitalization of childhood asthma, with crowded housing conditions, largest number of racial minorities, and highest neighborhood level poverty. So these types of homes have issues with their windows, their walls, their plumbings, allergies from dust mites, fungi, respiratory irritants, just a bunch of different things.
1: Mm-hmm. And what this fun this is funny because this actually fits with the conversation I had with an admission official when I was applying for medical school. Basically I was doing my master's at Hopkins School of Public Health or the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins. And one of the people interviewing me for a school in South Carolina asked me if I basically was aware of the school's history as far as how they interacted with the minority members of their community. And one of the things that came up was actually they enacted this lead study where they didn't get consent of the patients or the children in these homes. They didn't get consent of the families and they didn't inform the families that there was lead in the walls of these homes, but they used them to basically do a study and they had their own deal with the contractors and public health officials in the area to essentially collect data about how lead poisoning affects children. And these were almost not exclusively black children, but mostly black children, because this is Baltimore. So when you say that, when we talk about these healthcare disparities, yes, some of them are the result of choices or cultural choices or culturally driven choices. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them are due or a huge bulk of these health profiles are due to actual environmental factors. Mm -hmm. Imagine being in a home that was more likely to have lead, more likely to have asbestos, living in a place that was more likely to be next to a factory that had pollutants that caused asthma. These are real things that are affecting black people's health.
0: And that's why you're getting such an increase in these children that are going to be, that are hospitalized for asthma attacks Mm -hmm. it isn't because they are black it isn't because there's a special like gene in black people that's like oh i'm gonna give black people asthma Mm -hmm. it's because of this environmental pollution whether it's in the community or in their own homes are affecting their health Mm
1: -hmm. and this is a huge framing issue we have in medical education when we talk about these things Mm -hmm. like um it's not just that We mention these things and we say okay black people are more likely to have this they're really not explaining the environmental and cultural context that is really affecting the illness and the health profiles of black people they're just mentioning these things as discrete facts and framing it in a way where it's almost like we are inherently more prone to these
0: things Mm So, like, yeah, as Adrian was saying, in medical school, we we're taught that African-Americans are more likely to have, like, high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, stroke, and die from cancer. And it's always... It's never framed in any sort of, like, historical or cultural context. It's always that African-Americans is the risk factor mm-hmm. of having blood high Being blood pressure. African-American is the risk is factor. Is the risk factor, which... And, um, so in addition to like your other risk factors, like smoking, bad diet, not exercising, we're taught that African American, just by the, just because my melanocytes produce like more melanin or better quality melanin, like I am prone to these diseases, which like to me sounds crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, does that make sense to you?
1: it would make sense if somebody were actually providing concrete data to back this up to show me where the genetic like you know focal point is of some of these things Mm -hmm. but this is more honestly like a hypothesis this is more okay well we think this is why black people have this issue because Mm -hmm. we don't have any other information to say
0: that it could be another problem Mm -hmm. so i mean i sort i sort of understand because there is data that shows that african-americans Are more likely at least okay so African Americans ages 35 to 64 are 50% more likely to have high blood pressure than white Americans Mm -hmm. and we're also twice more likely to die from heart disease than whites Mm -hmm. so I mean if you followed this sort of data if we aren't looking deeply enough we could assume that it's an issue with African Americans But many of these diseases are lifestyle diseases, right? Mm -hmm. So if you did things like eating healthy, exercising, getting regular checkups, you could eliminate these diseases. But many of the neighborhoods that African Americans live in don't have gyms, parks, supermarkets, you know, Trader Joe's, Mm -hmm. farmer's markets. They don't have access to these things. So, and even if they do have access to like, let's say a small market, healthy food is expensive. Like... Mm -hmm a kale avocados in california like well Well, the idea is
1: people have done separate studies showing that these foods are not necessarily more expensive Mm -hmm. but there is definitely a dearth of quality produce Mm -hmm. in black neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and that's like that's a whole separate study um left over from my public health
0: days but like there, um i can even now in med school there are different walmarts Mm -hmm. right and there's a Walmart that is in a like, like a less nice neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And when I walk into that Walmart, the Walmart is huge, right? Mm-hmm. But their produce section is tiny. Yes. And the amount of stuff that they have, like everything, like let's say the bananas, the, but all the bananas are overripe. They're barely any. There's barely anything to begin with. Mm-hmm. And the quality is just poor. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of stuff that they have for the predominantly Hispanic and black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But when I go like closer to campus where it's like more affluence. Yes. There's so much produce. Yeah. There's magically all this fresh fruit and vegetables, the little sprinkler things is like putting the water on it and making it look nice. I'm like, wow.
1: And have you ever noticed also that when you look at these neighborhoods, so if you look at minority neighborhoods versus affluent neighborhoods like Loma Linda, for instance, there is a increased in density of advertising of fast foods and things that affect mm-hmm. these healthcare profiles in minority neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So corporations are actually preying on minority neighborhoods. I remember hearing a classmate actually mentioned this in one of our Bible classes. Um, not specifically the increased density of advertising, because that's what I answered his comment with. But mm-hmm. his comment was essentially that how much of this is independent choice on the on the um, shoulders of African American people? If they were just making better choices, they would probably have better health. So how much responsibility are we supposed to take as a society for the choices that these people are making? They're giving them these poorer health profiles. And I'm saying and I had I remember having to tell him that some of this is actually some of this is historical, but some of this is actually modern day coercion on the port and predatory practices on the part of corporations mm-hmm. who know that they can get more black people to buy cigarettes. There's less people protecting them policy wise, knowing that they can get black people to buy more soda, knowing that they can get black people to buy more McDonald's mm-hmm. because they can concentrate advertising in vulnerable communities that do not have people to champion them in policy.
0: Mm-hmm. So that also not only do we have historical historical background as in African-Americans have to live in this community community is underfunded. Mm -hmm. They have all these issues with the environment, the homes are next to these factories. And then on top of that, corporations are preying on them, Mm -hmm. having, um, fast food, selling soda, selling, um, having like stores, like little corner stores that like, instead of selling like healthy things and waters are selling like alcohol Um, Promoting cigarettes. um, Mm -hmm. What else is there? Having less fresh produce. And when you do have um, fresh produce, it's Mm -hmm. like bad. Poor quality. Mm -hmm. So all of this is playing a huge role into why African Americans are more likely to have these diseases. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily because of some genetic issue Mm -hmm. with African Americans but our genetic shortcoming our 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 genetic shortcoming but it's because of what society in the past and current are doing to our communities and i think to to blame african-americans or to blame a race for these diseases is just lazy science
1: it's lazy science and it's a vestige of scientific racism
2: it does make me feel like they're saying black people or African Americans are just susceptible to the worst of the worst kind of conditions you can imagine. And they just are because they are. There is no explanation. There is no reason. They're just sicker. They're just sicker. They're just sicker than everyone else. And I mean, I don't agree with that. I don't think that that's, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that that's just, and I don't think that the medical community has treated treated the subject of these health disparities in African American or black communities justly. And I feel like we have a responsibility both us as black physicians and the medical community at large to write this wrong.
0: Okay, so even though health disparities isn't, at least in the general public, isn't like a large thing or a really popular thing, it has become a little bit more Public, mm-hmm. and it's all because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Thanks to COVID, um, We've
1: got a lot of time on our hands to <laughs> do the thing because of COVID.
0: Because of COVID, and you know, I mean, this isn't like I guess a great um, resource, but I've been seeing like on Shade Room, they would like sometimes publish little articles about how black people are dying more from covid and i'll see like the comments of like people being surprised and mm-hmm. i mean this leads to like conspiracy theories but there there are reasons for this is because of health disparities mm-hmm. it's
1: black and hispanic people because mm-hmm. hispanic people are being affected by some of the same real estate factors environmental factors that black people are
0: mm-hmm. and also i mean currently asians are also facing um Physical like attacks and abuse because of COVID. So COVID has really like messed people up, mm-hmm. but they're acting. But
1: minority people,
0: minorities, yeah.
1: You know who are not rioting and protesting. which yeah,
0: which sounds really crazy. Because I was thinking like, why are people are people while people are attacking Asians because of the virus you have people rioting with guns while
1: Asian countries have actually had a more robust response and effective response to COVID-19 and we're basically carrying on like a country that has no public health infrastructure this is actually getting more political (laughs) so we'll just stop
0: there (laughs) let's get okay let's back to health disparities in COVID so a few weeks ago public health officials and physicians of color were calling for like more Race specific numbers pertaining to COVID 19 Mm -hmm. cases and fatalities. And because of COVID, it's been shedding light on health disparities. So in New York, black people make up 22% of the population, but are accounting for 28% of the deaths from COVID 19. Mm. And in Chicago, African Americans make up 30% of the population, but are accounting for 50% of the COVID cases. And almost 70% of the deaths. Which 70%. Is, which is
1: ridiculous. That's
0: ridiculous. In Michigan, the, back, the black population is only 14%. Michigan's my home state. Okay, It's only 14%. Um, but they're making up 33% of the COVID cases and 40% of the COVID deaths. In Louisiana, it's even worse. My goodness. Okay. So in Louisiana, the black population is 32%. But 70% of COVID deaths or COVID-related deaths are Black people.
1: And I can only imagine what Louisiana's national response has been, because I actually don't know off the top of my head, but I could hazard a guess (laughs) as to what their actual statewide response has been to this, being that it is a very red state. But again, that's a little bit more political than we should probably be getting.
0: (laughs) So it's crazy that it took a pandemic... To bring light to health disparities or what health disparities is doing to minority populations, right? Mm-hmm. And some people, as with other diseases, diseases that we've talked about, may try to explain, explain this as a, um, as a race thing, or just black people are more susceptible, genetically susceptible to COVID. But if you go deeper, there more there's more truth to be had. Mm-hmm.
1: There are several reasons for African-Americans while they're why they are disproportionately affected with COVID-19 compared to white Americans. One of those reasons being housing. We talked earlier about housing for a couple of minutes, but as previously stated, because of racist practices like redlining and steering, there is segregated residential housing. These communities are often densely populated and the families living in these communities are often multi-generational, which makes social d- distancing very difficult. The hotspot for viruses are prisons. Prisons, meat plants, blue collar places basically. And then places that have these marginalized groups of people that we don't really take care of as a society. So Cook County Jail had an outbreak where almost 400 detainees and 200 correctional officers were infected. In Ohio, it's even worse. A Vox article described how one in five of the state's confirmed cases is from the prison system and in the Marion Correctional Institution. 73% of the inmates test positive for the virus. And guess who makes up a disproportionate percent of inmates? African Americans. Again, due to racist policy, Uh if we're really getting into it. But... When you look around, who are the essential workers that have to continue to work despite this pandemic? Minorities. About 25% of Hispanic and Black workers are in the service industry. Compare that to just 16% of non-Hispanic whites. When we look in hospitals, African Americans make up 30% of licensed and practical and licensed vocational nurses. So these are the people who are making up your healthcare infrastructure. You know, you see these people kind of go off on Twitter and get kind of smart Mm -hmm. at the mouth talking about what we can do in med school, what we can do in nursing school, what we can do in PT school, but these are the people who are servicing them in the pandemic. These are the people who are their essential workers and are their frontline healthcare workers. Mm
0: -hmm. So we know that Black people are more affected... By COVID nineteen, by this pandemic, they're dying more. What are we gonna do about it? Like, what are we as a community going to do? What are doctors supposed to do about this?
1: I feel like there's a lot of a lot of solutions that we can explore in the second part of this episode when we kind of talk a little bit more about mutual aid and some of the things that people are doing to address the healthcare disparity. I just hope that this is not something that we think of only in the time of COVID and then we forget about it Mm -hmm. after, you know, we're done with this public health crisis. So on that note, we went through a lot of different topics in this episode, really all under the lens of pseudoscience and intellectual or academic racism. And so people listening, especially non-black people, researchers um students might be thinking to themselves, is there a way that I can collect race-specific data and not be a racist? (laughs) And the answer to that question is yes, yes, of course. Of course there is, because we just told you about how for COVID-19, we had the public and then public health officials basically calling for race-specific data. So race-specific data does provide us information, but the problem is how do we draw conclusions from that race-specific data? Mm -hmm. What is the lens through which we are drawing conclusions and framing discussions and presenting this information when we talk about the data that we gather from race populations or populations of races. Like race is a social construct at this point. It is not something that is biologically recognized. There is not a biological or biologically distinct separation between races. So this is really a social framework that we do have to recognize because it really does influence health outcomes. It really does influence how people are moving through the world. And so with that being said, there is a way to collect race-specific data and to carry out research without necessarily postulating that the reason that you're observing the differences that you're observing are specifically because of Black people's genetics, especially Mm -hmm. when you do not have evidence to support that. Because when you don't have evidence to support that, you have to wonder from where are you drawing that idea? Is it necessarily ill-intentioned? Is it just lazy scientific thinking or is it a subtle stereotype that you have about the biological fitness of black people and the black subjects that you're studying? And so that's what we kind of wanted to leave this conversation with, because honestly, there's a lot of things that we wanted to discuss about healthcare disparities in our next episode too. And we're doing this episode in two parts because there's a lot of territory kind of sort of to tread here historically pertaining to COVID-19 and the healthcare disparities that we're now kind of shedding a light on in the the national spotlight. So.
0: So don't forget to subscribe like not like share share rates and please leave us uh comments right. constructive criticism is um is welcomed here yep and
1: again me and martha we are really big on sharing the stories of minority medical students so reach out to us tell us a little bit of your story ask how you can be included in this conversation and we are super open to it
2: bye